All right. Well, good morning. We are in Haggai, and we have now turned the page. We're in chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2. I want to in, uh, uh, encourage you to pull open Haggai chapter 2, and we will read the passage together. Haggai chapter 2, we'll just read the first nine verses. That's the message for this morning. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who among you remains who saw this house in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem like nothing in your eyes? But now, be strong, Zerubbabel, declares Yahweh. Be strong also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Be strong, declares Yahweh, and work, for I am with you, declares Yahweh of hosts. As for the promise which I cut with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is standing in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the desirable things of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says Yahweh of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares Yahweh of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says Yahweh of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares Yahweh of hosts. Amen. This is our message today, and it is a timely message for those people in Haggai's generation. Now, from what we know of the context coming out of chapter 1, at this point, just reading off of the first line of the first verse of this chapter, less than a month has passed since the last prophecy of Haggai, and boy, have people been keeping busy. They've started work again on the temple, reconstructing what had long laid waste. The foundations have now been cleared. Brick after brick is starting to stack up, and the people are in full construction mode. This is a good thing. And now, after just about three weeks of work, another good thing happens. God gives them their first break. What a deal. It's time to celebrate this week-long national festival, the, this holiday that they will celebrate, the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths. Now, we learn about the Feast of Booths from Leviticus 23, Leviticus 23, 33 to 43. You don't have to turn there, but if you were to, then you would look starting at verse 33, and then you work your way down in the context of Leviticus 23, and you get to verse 39, which I'll read for you. On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the Feast of Yahweh for seven days, with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Well, we read here that the holiday would last for seven days from the 15th day of the month to the 21st, and it is a harvest festival. It's the end of the harvest season. It's a time to reflect on God's faithfulness throughout the year to sustain his people. Well, you skip down to verse 42 of Leviticus 23, and you read this. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native-born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. Well, so you can see where the name of the festival comes from. The people of Israel were to construct temporary structures 
dwelling tents that they would dwell in during that week in order to remember how God was faithful to their forefathers in the wilderness after the exodus and to recall all of the ways that he sustained them until they entered into the promised land. Well, Israel and Haggai's generation is in the promised land and they're celebrating God's faithfulness to their ancestors. But not only, but also to them and to their children, because they're in the land enjoying in some way the promises of God. So the Feast of Booths is the perfect moment to reflect on everything that God had done to establish and sustain Israel up until their day. That's what they're commemorating. However, right next to them is a big pile of bricks. And so right next to their festival tents, they're both commemorating the work of God so far and musing about the work ahead in the promised land. This is a vivid reminder to see this construction material there, to to see the tools that they have put to their side outside of their tents for one week. Now they have to think about God's faithfulness, not just in past generations, not just up until then, but will he be faithful as they move forward starting tomorrow? Well, God is faithful, But when you commemorate past victories the way we often do, sometimes we can hang on the laurels of those times, and we can grow a certain trepidation, a certain type of tension can fill in us in the present time because we wonder how it's all going to work out. We've seen it work out, but that's 2020 hindsight vision. Now we're looking forward, and we just don't know. And they're in the daily grind of brick and mortar, literally stacking bricks, And they're in a different time trying to reconstruct the temple. Back in the day, it was done under wise King Solomon. Now it's done with a governor, a high priest, and very normal, simple people of the land. So really, building the temple now in Haggai's day is a very different experience than it was under Solomon. And the people know that tension, and they live in that tension, and they ask questions as they face their near future. And so this is really what you would consider an emotional and a spiritual trial that they have to face. Will they do the work of building the temple? And that's a question that maybe we have at this stage of the narrative. And will they trust God with the results of their building, no matter how the end product appears? Well, they do have the chief goal of truly glorifying God. This is their heart's desire in this construction project. We've seen that in the prior chapter, verses 12 and 14, really recall the spirit of the people is united to the Lord. They are faithful. They are fully involved, fully engaged in the work. But they seem to be growing uncertain that the efforts that they put in with 100% capacity are going to result in a glorious way, the way that they were marked in times gone by. And so their question may be, will God indeed be glorified in the temple today as he was in the temple of the past? Well, like we've talked about this happening during the Feast of Booths, God's timing is perfect. In fact, it's divine. God's timing through Haggai to the people comes at the right moment. It's the last day of the Feast of Booths. Tomorrow, they're going to pick up their tools and they're gonna get back into the work. And so today, on a day that they're resting and they're commemorating all that God has done, and they're concerned about what comes when they proverbially get a case of the Mondays, like we all do, they need to recognize 
that God's faithfulness is going to carry them through, and they need to be faithful too. So you notice that in the first verse, on the 21st day of the seventh month, that's the day of this message, and it is the day of the Feast of Booths. And that message had better be resolved before the Lord in order to start their work tomorrow. They need to work today in the hope that the Lord will really use their service to accomplish his ultimate purpose of being glorified in all the earth. They need courage. They really do. It's an emotional and a spiritual trial. They need courage to press on in a new era, not resting on the successes of yesterday, even though they don't know what lies ahead. Can you identify with that frame of mind? Do you bring that in sometimes with your case of the Mondays? Well, today for them and for us, it might spell uncertainty in some way. It could raise doubts, especially knowing that tomorrow is in the Lord's hands, but to not see it makes us sometimes wonder how secure it is in his hands. So Haggai's message really throughout this passage is a very simple one. One statement I might say, keep your head down and your eyes up. Keep your head down, do the work, and keep your eyes up. Look for results in God, in his future time. And that's the message for us in the church age as we read from Haggai 2, verses 1 through 9. Because think about it. We serve God best when we're confident that he controls the results. We're measured by our faithfulness at the present, not the successes in this life that might come out of it. Do you understand that? We are measured in God's eyes by faithfulness, not by success, not by numbers, not by achievements. All of that stays on the earth when we go and fly up to him. And so we should strive today for obedience to Christ, and we should let him bear out the fruitfulness of all of it. Only he knows the future because it's securely in his hands. Amen? So because God is himself this perfect picture of faithfulness, we get a message from Haggai about how to live in the present, working for him, and how to trust him for the future, which is entirely in his hands. And so you see the outline here. And the prophecy breaks down into two parts, effectively equal parts, verse 1 through 5 and verse 6 through 9. And these parts of the message call us to be faithful today and to leave the fruitfulness to God in the future. Be faithful today and leave the fruitfulness to God in the future. So verses 1 through 5, work to glorify God now. Very simple. In verses 6 through 9, the second part, wait for greater glory in the future. Looking forward to expand on this, and so we start in Haggai's message where he starts in verse 2. And you notice in verse 2 that the tension of the people is a palpable tension. It's not only of the people, but it's the leaders too. Verse 2 identifies Zerubbabel as governor, Joshua the high priest, and he puts them together in this message. And it's the first message that all three uh, groupings of people have been put together. It's because they all need this message. Now, to those people of the land, they're called the remnant. They're the faithful ones who returned from exile years ago, and God wants to strengthen them for everything that comes next. So when you get to verse 3, you read, as we read, who among you remains who saw this house in its former glory? 
Who among you? Now, God is addressing, in this sense, only a small percentage of this entire audience. He's speaking to those who were alive at least 70 years before so that they were able to see Solomon's temple in all of its glory. Can you imagine that? Well, we do have a little picture of perhaps that it was a small percentage just from Ezra chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, uh, described that there weren't many old men left at this time of reconstructing the temple, but, but among those who were there, when they saw the rebuilding of the temple foundations, the old men cried in grief, not cried out of joy. That's what the young men did. It says that they shouted for joy. Now, the old men cried in grief. That's because as this older generation that had seen the house of Yahweh from Solomon, they saw it in its former glory. You can sense that 16 years from the time of that, those setting up of the foundations, from that grief, the grief hasn't ameliorated. It hasn't dissolved. They're not past it. Their hearts have remained heavy. Well, one thing that I've appreciated looking in verse 3 is how Haggai speaks on the Lord's behalf to these people. He doesn't just sugarcoat things. He doesn't have this Pollyanna positivity and just whisk away all of their concerns. What does he say? About the temple, Haggai asks, and how do you see it now? Does it not seem like nothing in your eyes? He, he doesn't... Uh, he doesn't necessarily want to revel in their doubts and their concerns and their grief, but he certainly validates that this is how they feel. It's a pastoral approach, but it's a pastoral approach that opens up the door for a theological response. What is that theological response? Well, it comes down to his word, use of the word temple, the word temple. Notice that here in, in this verse, Haggai didn't speak of the temple as Solomon's temple or a new version of Solomon's temple. He doesn't call it the second temple. What does he do? He just calls it by God's design what it really is, this house, this house. What's the significance of that? It's entirely theological, and it is the response to any of the concerns that these older folks have. Solomon's temple and this new temple are one and the same in God's eyes. Now, how would that be? Well, first off, they're both called this house. That means in God's eyes, they are different manifestations, different iterations, different versions of the same thing. Now, the old men might stare in dismay at what they're seeing form. They might not understand that this is the same temple because physically it's different bricks, it's, uh, there are differences in the methods of construction, the workers that are involved, the, the attitude of the people as they're undertaking this, the long delay, the, the questions of faithfulness, and the questions of where's the gold and the silver and all of the adornments going to come from. It's a different era. But you need to understand that that God doesn't look at this version of the temple as something aberrant, something new and strange, something outside of his intentional control. No, it's exactly what he wants. And think why. And this is part of the theology here. 
It's because God's presence is not contingent upon having an ornate structure to dwell in. Did he need a house of cedar? What does he say in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to, to David? That he doesn't need it. He dwelt in tents before, and, and surely the, the earth is the Lord's footstool. Can he even be contained in a box? So temple or no temple, you even think of Messiah when he comes and when he reconciles us to God and, and bring, gives us access through his atoning work on the cross to the presence of God. Now the presence remains and the presence is now in us. Think of these iterations, these manifestations of the temple from a tabernacle to Solomon's temple to this temple. And then, what we often don't associate in biblical terms, theological terms, it's the church. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are a sanctuary of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Verse 17 goes on to say, the sanctuary of God is holy, and that is what you are. A little further ahead, 1 Corinthians 6.19 teaches us that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you. Connect all of that and we see God's presence in perennial fashion, in different manifestations for the pleasure and the glory of God. Can you imagine what an immense encouragement that should be to these old people? We... We say old with the respect that is due them for their memory. The memory of all that they have experienced. But with all due respect to them, they need to understand that God has more in store. Far beyond what they had ever seen. And so their perspective is limited. And their perspective should change with this news. Everything their eyes tells them is that this temple is pretty much just a worthless building. It's unfinished. It's not being built in perhaps under Solomon-level wisdom and all of this, and it can't be adorned the way it was. But if there really is just one temple, this house of God, that spans all of redemptive history, whether it's tabernacle, Solomon's temple, this new temple, or the church, or beyond, then all believers of all time participate in God's purpose for building his temple. That is a beautiful idea. Let me repeat that so we can be thinking through that. All believers of all time participate in God's purpose for building his temple. So to serve him now is an important calling, and it is the way to glorify him even if you think that the glory that will result from this building is less than it was or less than it should be. It is your means of glorifying God. And that's because God's temple is this eternal reality. And so Haggai is calling the leader and all the people to pick up their tools again. The day is about to start. And it is time to rise up, pick up those tools, mix that mortar as soon as the festival is over because this eternal reality is calling. And it is time to get into it. Now take a look at verses 4 and 5. The opening words, 
But now, in verse 4, force this shift, not just in the message, but also in the way that the people are musing on this message. This is no time for a pity party. Life is moving at full steam. Reality is calling, and it is the temple. So, be strong and get to work. That's the message. Make today matter in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, and with your strength. And match now your knowledge, this newfound knowledge, with the zeal that you have. Match knowledge with zeal. And glorify God in your service. Notice that Haggai commands, be strong, three times. Be strong, governor. Be strong, priest. Be strong, all you ordinary people of the land. Well, where have you heard be strong before? Can you think of where that would be? Going back from, back to even before Joshua, to Moses commanding to Joshua in Deuteronomy 31, verses 6 to 7. Moses commands the people and Joshua to be strong and courageous. And then you flip a few pages and you get to Joshua chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, and Yahweh himself spoke to Joshua, and he commanded him to be strong and courageous. And then further along in Joshua chapter 10, verse 25, Joshua calls the people to be strong and courageous. You understand the theme here. Just like in our passage in verse 4, the leaders and all the people need to be strong for what purpose? To do the work of rebuilding the temple. No one can promise you that serving the Lord is going to be easy. And the reason that anybody would need this kind of inner resolve is because the task of glorifying God in your work, no matter what that task is, can be arduous and it can even be dangerous. It is a journey that we don't always want to be on. Think about how Jesus speaks to the people in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. It says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Can you imagine that journey? You can because you're doing it. God himself calls for his people to muster up that level of strength and courage. This internal driving will, this motivation to fight on a daily basis for righteous living, for the purposes of God to be fulfilled in your life. And so very clearly from Old Testament to New Testament, seeking God's glory is a 100% commitment and it is an unrelenting task. Isn't that true? Well, where's that strength going to come from? It can't come from ourselves or it's driven by the flesh. It can't come from just this state of victimization that I'm so weak I could never be in service to the Lord. Well, that also comes from the flesh. It's just as much ego as the one who exhibits pride saying he's too strong to need the Lord. Two opposite sides of the same problem. No, whether it's uh, this strong-headedness to do in your own capacity and competence without God, or it's the hands-off laziness of somebody who doesn't see the possibility. These are excuses not to serve the Lord. So what's the antidote then to the sinful leanings of somebody in this kind of pride, in this kind of even, whether it's in full strength, 
humanly speaking, or it's in despondency, victimization. The antidote is always the same. And you see it in the last phrase of verse 4, and you see it coupled with the last phrase of verse 5. I am with you, verse 4, and verse 5, my spirit is standing in your midst. We don't operate by the flesh, we operate by the spirit, and in the spirit we walk and we work. And with the Lord's help, you can survive any trial, you can overcome any challenge, and you'll find that anything that you do that is of lasting significance, anything that even potentially could please the Lord, is not done of your own strength. It's the Lord working in you and through you for his purposes. It is the Lord working by his spirit. Let me ask you a question. Who fights your battles and always wins? The Lord. Who makes you more than a conqueror because of his victorious life? Who strengthens your weak hands and your feeble knees so that you can run your race of faith with endurance? Who does this? Verse 4 gives us the name from the Old Testament perspective. He's called Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh of hosts. He's the king of the army of all of the holy angels who are his ministers. Hebrews 1 says, they do his bidding like flaming fire, like wind sent out on his behalf to aid believers in the task that he has called them to do. Yahweh of hosts directs all of the hosts of heaven to support his people for his purposes, not for fleshly accomplishments. Well, with God's help being so present at this time of need, and with Haggai's people so facing challenges that they are troubled by the need, we look to God and we see him as the ultimate, successful, victorious one who accomplishes all of his great designs by the Spirit who stands with them, stands close to them, the comforter, the advocate that we see in John chapter 14, the one who will not leave us to our own devices, will not allow us to do things for him out of selfish motivations, He'll shut it all down. That's the wood, hay, and the stubble that gets burned up in the end. But when God stands with you, when his spirit is standing with you, he is affirming, and it's a unique expression that we see here in Haggai. His standing with you is his approval of what you are doing when you are doing it by his power. And his standing with you is his promise of nearness as you go forward. So you see that, and then you see the final comment at the end of verse 5. The Lord commands, or it's not a comment, it's a command at the end of verse 5, do not fear. Knowing what we know, knowing that the, the pleasure of God in the work that we undertake, no matter how much we have to deny ourselves and, and, and die trying, would we ever have reason for fear? Can we move forward in service to God, ultimately knowing that results remain with him, but the work he's called me to, I can do by his grace with his enablement? That's where we need to be. Well, the idea of fear uh, 
can take on so many different dynamics in a person's life. It's a very nuanced type of uh, emotional problem. And in this case, uh, God, in this moment of the Festival of Booths, gives them yet another reason why they shouldn't fear. Festival of Booths, what are you doing? You're looking back. You're seeing God's faithfulness specifically in the Exodus and then throughout history. So what does he add here in our passage? He says, as for the promise which I cut with you when you came out of Egypt. You see, God cut a unilateral covenant with his people back in Abraham's day. We see that in Genesis 15, 18, and we see the fruit of it. It's unilateral because God makes a promise that he will not rescind. You and I, we make a lot of failed promises. God doesn't rest his faithfulness and his promises on, on Abraham's commitment to it, but on his commitment to fulfill his word in Abraham and in his seed. So you see that in Genesis 15, 18, and that's what's being brought out here, that when we talk about faithfulness to drive us into the future and through the present, it's God's faithfulness. It's testimony of God God in us, God who enables us with his spirit, who stands with us in the work. So as the Festival of Booths wraps up, while they're already focused on past deliverance, the people have all the reason now not to fear, but to find their strength in God. And that's the hope that they will. The spirit stands with them. So it's an incredibly encouraging message, isn't it? God's faithfulness to his promise for Israel casts out all fear. We see it historically, they, they meditate on it, but will they believe it? You know, it's that, that terrible distance, the worst distance in the world between the head and the heart. The knowledge that we can store in our brain enters in through the ears, through our eyes. We, we capture it as a sense of truth, but until it makes its way down into the heart, it'll never get to our hands, never get to our feet. Never get into practice. And that is the issue here. It's an encouraging message at this last day of resting at the Feast of Booths to see all that God has done, but not just meditate on past glories, past victories of God, but to imagine what comes next if we will commit ourselves to this faithful God who has unilaterally committed himself to us. So the first part of Haggai's message all the way through verse 5 is that the leaders and the people need to work to glorify God now. Be strong with the Lord's help. Don't fear. God's Spirit stands with you to accomplish all that he has planned for his glory. So serve the Lord today. And that's a message that we can take home, can't we? Allow the possibility, despite your struggles, get out of your own head and expect that there is a way for God to be glorified in your life today. And that's it. Serve the Lord today so that he'll be glorified in your life now. Now. Not just as he was once in your past. Not as he might be tomorrow, but today. And so his glorious plan for being glorified in you includes your acts of love for God today. But he does also have a lot more in store for his glory in the future. 
And that's the subject of the second section of the message from verses six through nine. So let's move to that. The second section, wait for greater glory in the future. Now, God has a plan to get his glory even beyond what some of these people saw in the former times under Solomon. And there's no reason to worry, no reason to fear that the present work won't be useful to God. It's what he's commanding them to do. It is how he wants to be glorified in them. That's because God is the, the plan maker and the plan keeper, as we even heard earlier. God always has a plan to ensure that everything works out for whose glory? For his glory. For his glory. So make no mistake, because God is jealous for his glory, he will be completely honored in the end. And until he receives everything that is due to his name in worship, then what do we do? We keep our heads down and we do the work. We do obedient work in a God-glorifying way, but, and this is the part, we lift our eyes up. Not in a distracting way, but in a focused way. A focus on God's promises for the future results of the work that we do now. So in verses 6 through 9, what we see, and this is for believers in Haggai's time, it's for believers today, that we need to obey while God paves the way. We need to obey while God paves the way, don't we? Keep your head down but get your eyes up. Take a look in verse six, how Haggai starts this section. He starts with the phrase, for thus says Yahweh of hosts. Well, this is again, the supreme God who commands all the angels of heaven, and he's in charge of how this big pile of bricks is going to get used. And in fact, what we see here in the future forecasting through this predictive prophecy now, we see other big piles of bricks come in when he shakes all the temples and all the palaces of all the kingdoms and brings them down to rubble. This big pile of bricks has a future. And of all the big piles of bricks that there will be throughout time, this is the one that will not erode. This is the one that will not get destroyed. This will become the structure in which God himself will dwell. And that's because he does it according to his good pleasure. Take a look at the expression once more. He says that once more he will, he will shake the world, he will cause himself to be glorified, and in this sense, through earthquakes. Interesting. It's going to involve earthquakes similar to the most historic earthquake up until this point in history, the shaking of Mount Sinai, that would be very present in their minds, especially during the Feast of Booths. As they think about this, we see that that kind of shaking is still too limited in scope compared to all that he's doing to establish his holy mountain, to establish his kingdom for all the land for him to receive worship from all the nations. Now, the reference, and, and Dr. Greg Fraser did a great job summarizing all of this and pointing out this very fact that this idea of shaking gets picked up only one other place, uh, and it's in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, 26 says that Yahweh's voice shook the earth. 
and it shook the earth then, it's mentioning about Sinai. But the passage in Hebrews 12 goes on to repeat what God says here uh, in this passage through Haggai, and that's that his promise is sure, and this is the quote from Hebrews 12, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Uh, he goes on in verses 27 and 28 to describe this once more idea of Haggai as this final climactic shaking long into the future that makes piles of bricks out of every man-made temple, every palace that exalts itself and its people above God. And so truly, the only temple that will stand in the future is the one that belongs in Hebrews terms, now going back to Haggai, that belongs to God's unshakable kingdom, the one that can't be destroyed, the one that can't be destroyed. It will remain forever. And so these bricks are supposed to represent what God is doing to establish himself in a righteous view on all the earth. So Haggai reveals this future temple of God's unshakable kingdom, and he does it as an encouragement to do the building work, but they need to be strong in order to work. Their labors today are going to, at least in AD 70, they're going to turn into a big pile of bricks again. Right, we understand that. But we're looking at these versions, these manifestations of God's presence in all the earth, and this has a certain purpose for them. The work that believers do in obedience to their calling is spiritually significant. Is spiritually significant. Working for God's glory is of eternal value, even if what comes up seems like it will just come down. This house will then be rebuilt. Structures rise and fall, but we're laboring with God's strength by the Spirit that stands with us for a future glory that will never come undone. And that's the point, isn't it? Well, he goes on from saying once more to now also say, in a little while, when will all of this shaking happen? And to quote uh, theologian Elvis Presley, uh, there's a whole lot of shaking going on. You knew it was coming. Well, in a little while, however near or however far that may be, and it's still near or far to us, we don't know. We know that about 2,500 years have passed since in a little while was given to talk about these climactic, cataclysmic future events, and it is still in somewhat of a distance, in God's timeline, it's inevitable. It is inevitable. This shaking will happen. The whole universe will be ripped apart. The heavens and the earth, it says here in Haggai, the sea and also the dry land. And so a whole lot of shaking going on. Picture the world and the universe as a snow globe. And when it's all shaken by God, what will settle? His temple. The only thing that, that has that durative quality is the kingdom of God. That little, little mustard seed that was too small for the natural world to ever take notice has now grown into this refuge for all who seek shelter in God under its branches, away from the horrors of this sinful world. 
God has a plan. And when he shakes all things, verse 7 says, the thing that they really want to hear, that he's going to shake all the nations. You see, it's one thing to say, okay, great. I've got a sense of the end. I've got a sense of how all these cataclysmic, eschatological events unfold. But what about me now? How does that matter here? Well, the future does matter because that's a reality that's coming. But to be very pointed to these people in this land, from governor to priest to the regular folks, he says that he will shake all the nations. That's the cause and effect of shaking the snow globe. To focus on shaking the nations is particularly comfortable uh, in in their their vision of the future. It's particularly, better way to say it, is comforting because they need the reminder that, that God doesn't just have the end in view. He's not... He's not just leaving us to our own chaos here. He's actually giving us a view of what he will do, and that does affect how we live here. Think of of how we worship God. We worship him as the judge, even though we don't see evil being judged all the time. We don't see our courts doing all the right work in that sense. But we call him the judge because we know it's coming. And that's what they need to do. They need to tap in to that future that's personal to them. They're in a world of oppression. See, they're in the promised land now. But they've had enemies around. Why do you think they stopped the work and then it just turned into malaise and apathy? But it was because of oppression. And as we see, even in the time that the temple is flourishing into Jesus' time, It's maybe not oppression as much as it is occupation. So is Israel living in the fullness of the promised land, even with the temple? No. They have the presence of the nations. And what they need to know is God is going to shake that snow globe and all the nations they go to. And that's the idea that we get in Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2, verses 4 to 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them when he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Only one kingdom will remain because there can only be one king. That's Messiah, God's anointed one, who is Yahweh himself. And Haggai's remnant need to keep their eyes focused on the unshakable kingdom of their strong king. See, they're laying the bricks. They're not free from all their enemies, whether it's oppression or coming up occupation. But what they need to understand is they can look forward to an unshakable kingdom that topples all other governments. And now they will put their trust that much more in God who judges, God who laughs at the nations just as he shakes them. So what's the significance for us today? Well, we don't see ourselves necessarily under this kind of oppression. Maybe we're getting there. Uh, We don't see ourselves in an occupation, not in the sense that Israel was experiencing at Haggai's time, but we are exiles, and we are trapped among the wicked, wicked governments run by Satan, who is the wicked god of this age. 
I'm just thinking of Ephesians 2 here. We're surrounded by his wicked sons of disobedience, aren't we? They serve Satan. They make it their ambition to harm God's children, and we feel that. We do, because non-believers are animated by evil. But for us, just like in Haggai's day, God will not let things go on in unrighteousness forever. Both the world and the nations in the world will be overturned for his righteous purposes. He will establish his king on his throne in the coming temple. So what you see here is a pile of bricks and a lot of work to be done. But do they see what's really going on? And can they work to glorify him now in hope of him being ultimately honored in the end? That's where they need to be. They need to have their eyes focused on God's honor in the future so that they, like we, will focus on serving in a way that honors God today. That's the connection. That's the way through the tension. So, just a smidge of eschatology here. Uh, Dr. Fraser also pointed out that the shaking of the nations and the shaking of the cosmos uh, is something that gets a lot of attention in the final book of Scripture, in Revelation. Revelation uh, chapters 6 through 19 show us this shaking in vivid detail. If we were to just look here in these chapters just very briefly, you don't have to thumb through them, but you would find this cataclysmic shakeup. It's a section in Revelation that details the judgments that occur during the seven-year tribulation period that occurs in the future. We're still not there yet. God's judgments on the earth are poured out in the form of seals, trumpets, and bowls. And that's this imagery that suggests God's divine authority to actually afflict a series of horrors on non-believers and on Israel so that they will repent or be judged. So in Revelation 6, for example, the seal judgments begin. And those include uh, things that we have not yet seen to the magnitude that we will see in the tribulation or that will, will exist. We will not see them. That's a message for a different time. Um, but the seal judgments include war, famine, death, pestilence, martyrdom, earthquakes, natu natural disasters. Going forward then in Revelation 8 and 9, you see trumpet judgments. What do those include? Well, they include about just about every scene in a summer disaster movie that you could even have ever seen, burning up one-third of the world's vegetation, destroying sea life, destroying ships, deadly water contamination and pollution, the darkening of the sun, the moon, and the stars, demonic locusts, and more deadly plagues. Not done. If that isn't enough, in the shaking of all things, Revelation 16 gives us the bold judgments. And those come in rapid succession and are particularly severe if what we've already seen in coming in the tribulation isn't bad enough. You get the painful sores. You get the death of all marine life. You have the turning bodies of water into blood so that no one can drink it. Uh, bad sunburns. Well, literally, the sun burning people with fire and heat. That's pretty bad sunburn. Earthquakes that break up the crust of the earth, a lot more than just the fault lines that we have today. Massive hailstorms. Get the impression of what's happening there? 
And this is what Daniel describes in Daniel 12.1, saying, There will be a time of distress such as never happened since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Israel will be rescued. And that's how Daniel's last point here connects with the results of this shaking up of the world, the universe, and the nations. That's what Haggai's driving back in our passage in verse 7. It's that the very world order will be upended physically, politically, for this purpose. So that all the nations, when the snow globe settles, will only see the temple, the kingdom of God, Messiah, who will return to reign in Jerusalem to receive all of his glory and his honor from all the eyes left on the earth. Now go to Haggai 2, verse 7. And the prophecy is that the nations will come, and this is now talking about a, this later temple, this, this time after destruction, after the tribulation period. They will come with the desirable things of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory. Well, the desirable things of all the nations in this context refer to gifts and treasures, all of the valuable items from the nations, their most prized possessions will now flood into Jerusalem in the future. Not now, says Haggai. Not now, we say to the church. But then, in that day, with that eschatological vision, that's what Haggai is saying. Now, we, we have representations of this. If you've gone to Buckingham Palace, you've been to other places where uh, there are gifts given to royal families uh, from all the nations. You, you see uh, quite beautiful, precious items uh, of inestimable worth. But the reality is that still pales in comparison. In fact, so much glory will come in the form of all of these treasures and valuables from the nations that even Solomon's kingdom has nothing compared to that, compared to what's coming. And he received so many different gifts in his day. These are the rare items of greatest worth that will be put on display before Christ, who is our most prized possession, who is our treasure, who is the desire of nations, Christ. He is more than any of these things, and yet all of those things, glittering and shining and of great precious value, they will be given to him at his feet in that temple, in that day. That's the vision that Haggai's builders need when they pick up their trowel again, when they grab their hammer, when they kiss the wife goodbye it's not going to be this long sigh of, I don't know what we're doing. No, they know what they're doing. It just will be millions of times more in the future than anything that they could possibly come up with, even with their excellence and their skill. See, they don't need to compare what they're doing now with the palaces and the temples of other nations. They don't need to compare the 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 
products that go in to adorn this place. They don't need to compare the architecture. They don't need to compare any of the decor. They don't need to have anything except the comparison with the future, their future, for this house. And that's what's going to get them moving again. You see, there's something else tucked in there in verse 7. It's that God will do it. God will do it. He will orchestrate all future events and all future gifts to flow to Jerusalem to adorn his beautiful house. God will do it himself. After all, verse 8 says that silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares Yahweh of hosts. Is, Is there anything that doesn't belong to the Lord? I mean, think about it. Psalm 50, verse 10, Yahweh declares, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Psalm 24.1, David affirms that the earth is Yahweh's as well as its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Is there anything that will stop him from adorning his house in the future? So Haggai and his people can be sure that there's not one fleck of gold out there right now that will not make its way by his superintendence into that temple. There isn't any silver out there. There's no ruby too deep in the earth that God doesn't know where it is and will use it to help glorify his son. There's no diamond tucked so far away in a safe that God can't retrieve it and bring it into his treasure houses. You see, he knows where all the lavish materials are and he is going to cause them to flood in. And that's the vision that they need to have while they're mixing cement. How does that work for you? With the work that you have been commanded to do, will you press on in your work? Will you stay faithful to the faithful one? Now, there's a lot more descriptions about the temple that you can read about. Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48 is an excellent, excellent, contained, um, just treasure house of information on this coming temple. Not this one in Haggai's day but the one that will be rebuilt where there will be the throne of Christ for him to sit. And that's that future manifestation of the temple that needs to be so central in their minds. This temple will endure in radiant glory for 1,000 years because Messiah himself is going to sit on David's throne and make that temple his palace. There's never been that combination of things within um, God's economy until then, where just like Zechariah 6.13 describes Messiah as a priest, he is also king. He will dwell on his throne in the temple where a priest would serve. That's the throne of David, Zechariah 6.13. And his throne belongs only to him, the rightful son of David. And it will only be there in the temple. That's what must shake out in the end. This glorious vision of this radiant Christ. Such radiance of Christ's majesty will cause all the treasures of the nations to radiate and reverberate with his light. Can you imagine the resplendent glory of Christ seated on this throne that is entirely bejeweled and yet he himself is brighter than any light? Can you imagine how that would shine then through? Can you imagine just the arc of that visible spectrum of light and how it would fall over the world? That's 
where Isaiah 60, 19 helps us. It says, no longer, speaking of this time and then in future time after that, no longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have Yahweh for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. He who is our glory will one day fill his house with glory beyond anything that we have ever seen, beyond anything that we could even imagine, he will do it. So I ask you, what impact does this future vision of the millennial temple have on you today? Because Haggai has a point to all of this, doesn't he? Well, it means that like the temple builders then and the kingdom builders that we are now, we who labor brick by brick in kingdom work, figuratively or literally, need to keep our eyes fixed on the hope of glory. And that glory is Christ, and it is glory through Christ. It is glory for Christ, and there our eyes must stay. Keep your head down and lift your eyes up. That's what Haggai wants for us. So you put these ideas together, this shaking and this filling, and I'll give you a statement. God will do the filling once he has done the shaking. God will do the filling once he has done the shaking. You look at life today and you see how the world is going, and we need to make sure that we don't look at the world and everything in it the way the world looks at it. The world lives for today's lesser lights, not Christ, nothing glorious, just temporary pleasures, lesser treasures. Those that are going to be eaten by moths, those that are going to be destroyed by rust, those that are going to be crashed down into their own pile of bricks one day. But for us, above all, the greatest desire that we have is to see Christ reign gloriously on his throne, isn't it? And we long to see him seated in Jerusalem. And that orientation of the future changes how we look at things here, doesn't it? We long for the day that we will experience these total benefits of this sovereign rule of our great God. We dream of his light radiating out into all the earth. We want him present with everyone. And we long for that which comes of it. And so you see our holy longing encapsulated perfectly in verse 9. Final verse of Haggai's message is our final verse this morning. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. Talking about the future millennial temple, says Yahweh of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares Yahweh of hosts. You see, when Christ takes his rightful throne, then we reach shalom. Then we reach that biblical concept of peace, wholeness, healing, justice, a society that functions to the glory of Christ, hearts that no longer need the kind of training and discipline that they must have now, where there is community in that perfect sense of spiritual fellowship. There's peace in every sense. Wholeness isn't just for the individual. It's not some North American idea of self-fulfillment, Zechariah 8.12 says that there will be peace for the seed, peace for the vine, peace for the land, shalom. 
8.16 then describes how future citizens will learn to speak the truth to one another, to judge with truth and judgment for peace. See, peace radiates out as the light of the glory of Christ radiates out. So is there any doubt that the latter glory will be greater than the former? No doubt at all. So Haggai's message then is to work obediently, leave the results to God. Why? Because our hope in the future glory of Messiah causes us to hope in the present glory of Messiah in our midst. See that connection? You can't just want him to rule and reign in the end. You must want it now. You must not be content with saying, his light will shine out in darkness then when we have the Great Commission, when we have the call of God to proclaim to others that they too can be exiles with us and travel toward home, toward glory, at the presence and the feet of Christ. We know the ultimate result. Now let's work with the right application. The application, serve the Lord today and trust God with the future. Could we be any clearer than that? Maybe. Roll up your sleeves and serve the Lord today. Get to work. Redeem the time that you have for his kingdom. When's the last time that you asked God to glorify himself in your work? Today? This hour? Keep your head down, but also keep your eyes up. And secondly, trust God with your future. Trust him to vindicate his name. Trust him to be honored worldwide one day. Don't grow uh, hopeless. Don't grow despondent. Don't lose sense of his promises in this dark world. Because his glory will shine brightly across the earth, but at the fixed time. May not be now. Might not be the results we're looking for, but fruitfulness is for the future. And furthermore, be grateful be grateful that in Christ, even now, you're allowed to participate in laying down spiritual bricks for his glorious temple. Praise God for his presence. Praise God for this generous, lavish grace in your life. And even now, to see that as the indescribable gift that it is. That is Haggai's message for us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, help us to work today for your glory while we wait for the glorious tomorrow that you've planned for your holy name and for all those upon whom you have set your love. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.